We are in a study of Daniel, and uh, we're on chapter 9, probably one of the most exciting chapters in the book. There's 12 chapters, but I was, I've been looking forward to getting to chapter 9 because, as I've told you, it has the most amazing, greatest prophecy, I believe, in the whole Word of God in it. It was an answer given to Daniel's prayer, and we have been looking at Daniel's prayer. Last week we started it. And the title of our message was A Super Powerful Prayer. That was real original, right? Part one. So today's message is, I'll give you a guess, part two. (laughs) A Super Powerful Prayer, part two. And we will be looking at verses 16 to 23. So if you want to go ahead and position yourself in the book of Daniel, chapter 9, starting at verse 16. But let's ask the Lord's blessing on our time together. Would you bow with me? Father, you are indeed worthy of all of our praise and honor. You are sovereignly in charge of all human affairs. You are the one who sets the limits on evil and on the evil one. You not only deal on an international level in this world, but you intimately care for each and every one of us individually. Like the people of Daniel's day and like Israel... We know, we confess that our nation has in many, many ways turned from you. We know, Father, that there is none righteous, no, not one. So we come to you poor in spirit, humble in heart, and ask that you would forgive each of us our specific sins as we think of them in our minds. We recognize that our sins are not just individual. They don't just affect us personally in our relationship with you our fellowship with you, but, but they also hurt those around us. They, they affect those in our community and those in our individual churches and in our families, of course. But most horrifically, they, they bring reproach upon your holy name. We know we have sinned and we have done wickedly. We, we want to be like Daniel and not sugarcoat our sin. We have committed sins of both commission those we have committed, and those of omission, those things we know we should have done, like witness for you or speak out for you, and we have not done them. We have not always listened to or acted upon your word. We have not always been doers of the word as well as hearers, as we should. And we know we deserve your wrath, and we deserve death. We, we deserve eternal separation from your holy presence but how we do rejoice in the good news that your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, has paid for our debt in full, that he endured the torture of death and separation from you on the cross on our behalf, and he rose again on the, on the third day. And we know, Father, that we, we love him, and we love you only because he first loved us. But now let us show forth our love for you and for our Savior by our obedience and by our willingness to be in the remaining years of our lives to be your living sacrifices. We want to become more jealous for your reputation and for your testimony before a lost and dying world of sinners who need, like us, need to be saved. And we do thank you for our salvation. 
If there is anyone in this room who has never personally invited you to be her Savior, her Lord and Savior, I pray she would repent of her sins and ask you into her heart this very day. We know we will rejoice and the angels in heaven will rejoice for one soul who enters into your kingdom. Now we ask that you go before us, help your servant to think clearly, speak um, quickly, and may we get everything in we need to. And may your Holy Spirit be our teacher, and may he have his will and way in every heart here. For we do ask in the blessed name of our Savior, amen. I'm trying to change the way I pray, because I've been very convicted (laughs) studying Daniel's prayer. Um, Now, a summary of the first part of his prayer, which we found in verses 4 to 15, which followed... Immediately upon his study of what? What was the scripture? That's why we entitled that first part of our outline. um, Old prophecy prompts prayer because he was studying the prophecy of Jeremiah and that's what prompted him to pray. But a summary of that first part was that it was a heartfelt confession that Israel had no one to blame at all for her shameful calamity as captive slaves in Babylon. She had no one to blame, especially God, for where she was but herself. That's what he repeatedly over and over again. Did you know that 72% of Daniel's prayer, 72% of it is confession? Whoa. What about our prayer meetings at our churches? Do you think 72%? What about our own individual prayers? 72% is confessional. That just shocked me. He repeatedly acknowledged, as I said, that the Jewish people were at fault for having turned from God, having ignored his many warnings over the centuries from many different prophets, that if they did not obey, I mean, it was a simple principle, obey and you'll be blessed, disobey and you'll be cursed. They hadn't listened to him. They turned to idols. They didn't obey the the um, Sabbath law about rest for the land. They didn't obey the Jubilee. And he said, if you didn't, I'll have to remove you from the land. So she gets her rest. They didn't pay any attention. They didn't repent. And they, they acted wickedly, meaning that they acted in light of the truth because they were the one nation on the planet that had the truth, the word of God, and knew the true and living God. And they were supposed to be sharing him with the world. They weren't really doing that either, were they? But they, they instead were turning to the gods, the false gods of the, um, the pagans. But they knew better. In light of his truth, they still acted wickedly. They, so they deserved the punishment that they had received at the hands of their Babylonian oppressors. And Daniel acknowledged that. After all, the Babylonians, Nebuchadnezzar, they were only God's tools. Nebuchadnezzar was God's servant to chasten his own people. Well, in that confessional part of Daniel's prayer, we also heard a lot about God's character, didn't we? For example, in verse 4, how did Daniel refer to God? Great and dreadful or awesome, yes. And as one who keeps his covenant. He referred to him as one who is merciful to those who love and obey him. This is all about God's character. In verses 7 and again in verse 14, Daniel correctly stated that righteousness belongs to God. That means he is the source of all righteousness. There would be no righteousness in this world if it wasn't for God. There would be no love in this world if it wasn't for God because he is love. 
He is righteousness. There would be no light in this world. You know, that's what hell is. It's the absence of God. It's the absence of love. It's the absence of righteousness. It's the absence of truth and justice and holiness. And, and what did I miss? Light. <laughs> yes, yes, that's why hell is dark. Because God isn't there. So righteousness belongs to him. Therefore, he always does that which is right. He, he cannot do otherwise. He cannot, you know, people question what he's doing. Well, will not the God of all the world do that which is right? He cannot do that which is wrong. In verse 9, Daniel spoke of God's mercies and his forgivenesses, even when his people have rebelled against him. He is still merciful, and he is still always willing to forgive. If someone is willing to repent, he is willing to forgive. Verse 15, Daniel refers to the mighty power of God, which was exemplified. Remember, the Jews are always told by God to remember his mighty power by looking back at what particular event. What event did Daniel mention in verse 15? The exodus from Egypt. Pharaoh did not want to let Moses' people go, did he? Not at all. And it took those ten plagues, the ten miraculous interventions of God to get Pharaoh to finally let the Jews go. And then, of course, there was the dividing of the Red Sea. That was a great example of God's mighty power to deliver his people. So the Jews are always supposed to look back on that. So that's what Daniel's talking about. And the prophets, many of the prophets had seen an analogy between the Egyptian exodus and the deliverance that would free Israel from her bondage as slaves, you know, in Babylon. They saw that analogy. Such prophets as Isaiah and Jeremiah and Micah and Hosea. And Daniel also saw that analogy, which is why he did mention the Egyptian exodus. He was invoking the covenant relationship between God and Israel that was made through Moses right after the exodus, there at Mount Sinai, the Mosaic Covenant, he was, he was invoking that covenant and he was using God's past deliverance of Israel from Egypt as part of his appeal for God's mercy now on undeserving Israel in the present to be allowed to exit Babylon as slaves. So you see what he was doing there? Well, following the confessional part of his prayer, Daniel began his supplications, or what we would call prayer requests, his, his uh, prayer requests in verse 16. And you'll notice it's a whole lot shorter. His prayer requests are a whole lot shorter than the confession part. And he founds or bases his petitions on two attributes of God for which believers should be most thankful, and they are his grace, and his forgiveness. On our outline, I call it his favor and his forgiveness because you know how I am with letters, starting with the same. So I call it his favor and his forgiveness. His favor he talks about in 16 to 18 and his forgiveness in verse 19. You know, if the Lord God Almighty, the creator of the entire universe, if he was anything like all the false gods of man's imagination, um, with the help of the satanic realm, all the false gods of the world. You know, I just read something on the Internet that the millennials are moving away, we know this, but away from Christianity and even away from atheism, and they are turning to Buddhism, of all things. 
crazy, isn't it? But if our God was like the false gods, it would do no good at all for us to make prayer requests to him. It would do no good to ask his merciful favor, his grace, or his forgiveness. Because the false gods are just like the men whose imaginations have created them. Now, God made us in his image, but man makes his gods in, in his, man's image. And therefore, by and large, the false gods were really pretty merciless and not very forgiving. They're impersonal and they're vengeful. That, however, is not the character of the true and living God at all. People who read the Old Testament and think we have a vengeful God, they just don't get it. They just don't understand. They don't know God. But he is not that way at all. When we sincerely ask his forgiveness, we have a God who hears. He has real ears, not like those statues. He sees what's going on down here. He sees our, he hears our cries. He cares, he loves, and he responds. Did you know that prayer is totally dependent on the character of God? Totally dependent on the character of God. If we didn't have a loving, caring, personal, merciful God, forget your prayer requests. You just, you know, we're talking to a nothing. Well, as mentioned in the last lesson, Daniel knew the signs of the times. He knew the day in which he was living, you know, on God's prophetic calendar as far as it went to his point in time. And he had learned from where? The scripture about the prophesied 70 years of duration that they would spend in Babylon. And he knew that he had been there some 67, 68 years. He was in his early 80s. Remember, this is the same year as the lion's den, chapter 6. He's in his early 80s. He's been in Babylon, a captive for 67 or 68 years. And he knows that the time is almost over. 70 years are almost over. So what did he do? He prayed. Even though he well understood God's sovereignty, he did not just think to himself, like maybe the tendency is with some of us sometimes, and I lapse into this from time to time. Well, I know God's sovereign. He's orchestrating everything. His word is going to be fulfilled. So it's going to happen anyway. So why should I pray about it? Why should I take the time to pray? I know it's going to happen because he said it. He's going to fulfill his word. He didn't think that way. What had he done before before he actually got onto his knees? I don't know how long he did this for, but he fasted, didn't he? He was going to take this very seriously. He fasted. Then when he did get on his knees, of course, he was dressed in sackcloth and ashes. I mean, that's really going <laughs> the full route. And he he began with 72% of his prayer, confessing, confessing. And he included himself in the confession, didn't he? Even though nothing ever bad is said about Daniel, he included himself. He knew that he, too, didn't meet up to the righteous standard of God. So he he confessed, and then he supplicated. You know why he did all that? So as to be involved and cooperative with what God is doing in this world. He wanted to be a part of it. Yes, we know, and he knew that all the predicted um, things would happen. Their release would happen. Cyrus was already on the scene. God had named him, what, 150 years before the guy was even born. So he knew that it was going to happen, but he, if he hadn't prayed, he would not have had a part in it happening. 
when we pray, like if you pray for somebody for years and years to get saved and then finally that person gets saved, well, maybe God, you know, was going to save that person all along, but you're part of it. You can, you get involved in the blessing of it. The answer to his prayer, which is this great 70 weeks prophecy might have been given to somebody else instead of Daniel. Or maybe, I don't know, maybe God wouldn't even include, have included it in the word of God. And that would be terrible because it's such a blessing. So, you know, Daniel prayed because he wanted to be part of what God was doing. Prayer is a means by which you and I have the amazing privilege of getting involved in God's program. It is a true honor and privilege, isn't it? To be able to go boldly because of Christ. When that veil was rent, we can go boldly into the Holy of Holies to present our petitions to a loving, caring God. In our beginning look last week, or last two weeks, <laughs> last class, um, at the first section of the prayer, which I told you was entitled Old Prophecy Prompts Prayer, we discussed some prayer preliminaries. Daniel told us the prayer setting It was the first year of the reign of the Medes and Persians, and Darius was the new king of Babylon. He is the king who got manipulated to throw Daniel this very same year into the lion's den. I don't know if that lion's den has already occurred or if it's going to happen sometime after this prayer, but it's the same, same year. So Daniel told us the setting, then he told us which prophetic scrolls he had been studying, primarily Jeremiah, then he told us about the penitent sackcloth that he put on, and then the sins that he professed before God, both his and Israel's. So now we turn to look at his prayer petitions, verses 16 to 19, where we find that in addition to Daniel's clear recognition of the fact that Israel's Babylonian captivity was the direct results of their own sins. You know, what we're suffering in this country, all the different judgments that are falling, and people don't like to hear this, but some of the calamities, even the natural calamities that are happening in this world, in this country, are the church's fault. I don't blame the secular people who don't know the Lord. This is the church's fault primarily, some of the things that are going on in our country. He, in addition to understanding that Israel was at fault for her captivity, he also did know, and we've seen this, that God is merciful and he is forgiving and he is gracious. You know that a great place for the believer to put his or her confidence is in the compassion of our God. A great place for our confidence is in his compassion. Aren't you glad? You know, when Jesus walked this world and he looked at the multitudes, what did he feel for them? Compassion. He had a shepherd's heart. He was upset about all the false shepherds leading the people, the sheep astray. And and there's so many. I'm dealing with right now an apostate pastor in Moore County. That just would break your heart. He's leading people astray, a blind leader of the blind, and they're both going down the the ditch of destruction. I don't know why he calls himself a Christian. He doesn't believe Jesus is the only way to heaven. This is a different one than one I told you about before. Um, He doesn't believe the Bible is the inspired word of God. He thinks you can get to heaven by giving your neighbor a cup of water, which he takes totally out of context. I mean, all kinds of just messed up ideas. And he's, he's gravitating probably towards Buddhism, too. <laughs> and yet he's got a Christian church. 
Where was I? I was talking about compassion. How did I get into that? <laughs> I got to remind myself not to complain, but to confess. Okay. Anyway, it doesn't do anyone any good whatsoever. And this is what made me think of this guy because he's, he's counting on his good works to get him to heaven. He said, I think the best way is to just be kind and to love your neighbor as yourself. And he, he said, that seems to be the best way. He said, I don't know if that will really get me there, but that seems to make the most sense to me. But that, you know, that what that reminds me of is that Pharisee, that proud Pharisee in Jesus's parable in Luke chapter 18, who lifted up his eyes to heaven and just told God, you are so, so fortunate to have me. I am just such a great guy. I tithe and I do all these things. I even tithe mint. Did he leave the temple that day justified? No, God hates a proud and haughty spirit. And that guy was full of himself. Rather, we are to come before God. The first beatific uh, attitude is what? Poor in spirit. We're to be poor in spirit. We're to be like that penitent publican. He knew he was a sinner in need of God's grace and mercy and forgiveness. He wouldn't even look up to heaven. He, He looked down, he smote his breast and said, what? Lord, be merciful to me. A sinner, and he's the one who left the temple justified. That's to be our attitude, humility. So rather than coming proud, we come in sincere humility, confessing our utter worthiness, unworthiness to do so, and we align our petitions, our prayer requests. We are to align them as best as we're able with God's promises and his prophecies. And when we do that, then we know we are praying in his will. For example, if I pray for someone unsaved to come to know the Lord and be saved, I know I'm praying in the Lord's will, don't I? Why? Because it's not his will that any should perish. If I pray for the United States of America to repent of her sins, I know I'm praying in his will. If I pray for a new Lexus, not so sure <laughs> that that's in his will. <laughs> anyway, we and how do we learn his promises and his prophecies? Where do we learn it? Just like Daniel from the scripture. That's why Bible study is so very important. That's why there's so many people out there who don't know what's going on because they don't bother to study the word of God. But la- last but not least, we are to base our appeals on God's grace, his favor, and his desire to forgive. Where there is true repentance, he will always forgive. So beginning with verse 16, Daniel went from confession to petition. Now, this is what's interesting. If you read through his whole prayer, and I am going to get to it in a minute, I promise you. But to this point, he had not asked anything at all of God. He has not asked God for anything. He has merely agreed with God about his own sins and those of his people. He has acknowledged God's righteousness in his judgments on them. Now, we'll note that as his confessions aligned with God's character, God's person, like his absolute holiness and God's righteousness and his justice and his covenant-keeping nature and his almighty power, his confessions all aligned with God's character, so too do his prayer requests, his petitions, his supplications align with God's character. God's confession agreed that the Lord had acted in perfect accordance with his holy and just nature when he disciplined Israel, which he had said he would do. 
If she didn't get her act straight, he said he would do it, and he did it. Now his appeal, which is really all about the restoration of Israel, the Jewish people, back to their land. That's what it's all about, even though he never really comes right out and says that. That's amazing. Doesn't really ask for that, but that's what it's all about. His appeal is also based on God's merciful, compassionate, and forgiving nature. So we find that his entire prayer, both the confession part, the praise part, and the petition part, his whole prayer is aligned with who God is. And it's not in accordance with Daniel's own ideas about how things should be or his own opinions or his own issues and his own needs. Now, if I was in Daniel's shoes and I had been abducted as a teenager to a foreign land, I've been a slave for some 68 years, had never seen my family or my homeland again, as far as we know. I don't know, maybe he saw his family again, but we know he never saw Jerusalem again. And I had been serving a cuckoo king for many years who was just always very volatile, ready to cut people into little pieces at the least little provocation, you know, Nebuchadnezzar, served him for many years, and then a series of other kings that came and went, and then Belshazzar, his grandson, who was so arrogant and full of himself and didn't even know who Daniel was. He went, you know, served him even though he was totally unappreciated. And now I'm serving a new king and a new regime where this king is easily manipulated and he's made him prime minister, but he's surrounded by enemies who want to get rid of him and maybe have already thrown him in the lion's den. Anyway, think of it. The guy must have said, Lord, this has not really been a great life. Well, it was because he had a personal relationship with him. That's what made it great. But the circumstances of his life, I think if I'd been in his shoes, I would have said my prayer request would be help. (laughs) I don't think this is very fair, God. I have been so faithful to you. Don't you think you can get me out of this situation and blah, blah, blah. You know, I don't know what I would have prayed, but he, he didn't do that. He didn't say, God, I think this is what you should do. He didn't give his own opinions. He just aligned his whole prayer with who God is. All through this thing, he talks about God's mercy and his forgiveness and his righteousness. <laughs> you know, that's, that would make prayer requests a whole lot easier. Lord, just be merciful and righteous as you always are. And we know you'll do that which is right. And then, of course, bring in some of his promises and where we are in history, you know, signs of the times. Even so, come quickly, Lord. Do you know? Do we work at praying? And I'll tell you what. To me, prayer is work. I think it's the hardest part of the Christian life. And because Satan attacks, doesn't he? He knows that prayer is how things get done. So he attacks us in our prayer lives. So do we work at aligning our prayers with God's person and His revealed plans? Do we begin our prayers with meditation on his word? I've heard many times many people say, read through some of the Psalms before you begin to pray, which is a really good idea because the Psalms are full of what? Praise, praise to God. And it just gets you into the right spirit. Do we begin with meditation on his word and with appreciation of all the various aspects of his character? That's a great place to start. Just start listing to God all the wonderful attributes of his person because they're, they just go on and on and on. 
Do we confess our sins of commission and omission? Always forget about the omission. The Lord leads people in our lives all the time that we should give a word of testimony to. And do we always? Mm. You do. You wear a hat that just says it right there. That's a good way to do it. <laughs> we all need that hat. So, but I know many times, you know, I just don't speak up when I should. So we need to confess our sins of omission. Or do we do this? And I'm guilty. Do we just jump right in? Oh, Lord, you're wonderful. Now, here's what I need. <laughs> we jump right in with our own issues and our own needs and our own ideas as to how he should answer our prayer requests. And we do this a lot with sick people. If you go to prayer meetings, what is most of it about? Adrian Rogers said that we, spend, we Christians spend more time praying believers out of heaven than we do praying for unbelievers to be stay out of hell. Think about it. Every time somebody's sick, their name goes up there, right? <laughs> They're a believer, but we want them to get well because we don't want them to go to heaven yet. <laughs> Isn't that true? <laughs> and how many t- how many names are up here about people who need to get saved? I don't know. I don't know who these names are. What what's up there actually? But. That was true. That is so true. And that's, wow, that's really convicting. We all need to work at beginning our time of prayer with praises. And uh, we we should think more about the blessings in our lives. You know that song, Count Your Blessings, Name Them One by One? That's so true. So true. Instead of counting our burdens and, you know, being just, if you count, start counting your blessings and how good he's been to you over the years and it just puts you in a better mood, doesn't it? And I, I've got to admit, I'm guilty of this because I complain. I complain about what's going on in our country, and I complain about this instead of confessing and counting my blessings because I have many, many blessings. And all of our blessings are completely the result of his goodness and his grace. Now, somebody might question why the Lord would need to tell, hear us tell him things about himself that he already knows. Like, oh, God, you are so long-suffering with me and with us as a country. You're so uh, loving and, and merciful and gracious and forgiving. And, you know, we're listing all the attributes. Do you think he doesn't know what he's like? He needs to know we know. Yes, exactly. Exactly. He needs to know that we know. I mean, don't you like to know that your husband loves you or that your children Love you. I mean, you don't want him. You say, honey, do you love me? Well, didn't I tell you that 40 years ago? (laughs) If I change my mind, I'll let you know. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Don't you want to hear every once in a while a thank you from your children? Yes. I mean, doesn't that just bless you? (laughs) It's his. Of course, he knows about himself. He doesn't need us to tell him about himself or, you know, praise him for those things. But it is the great delight of his heart to hear our praises and our heartfelt appreciation. Remember the 10 lepers? How many came back to thank the Lord? Only one. Because when we do, as you said, when we do that, it reveals to him that we know him. Don't you get frustrated sometimes? I don't know who this would be with, a husband, a child, someone close to you, who you really love, you really love them, unconditionally love them. And you do something, and it's because you love them. 
It might be that tough love stuff, you know. Uh, and they don't understand you. And they think you're mean. And they don't understand. They don't, And you want them so much to know your heart. And they're misunderstanding you. Well, that goes on all the time. For, I don't know why. His heart has just got to be broken over and over and over again. Because people don't know that he's done everything because he loves them. And they look at him as mean. And, you know, and then they turn to Buddha or something crazy. But we want to be known. And God wants to know that we know him. That is his greatest desire is to be known by those he loves. Furthermore, it is not possible to praise God with hearts of sincere worship and at the very same time be self-centered in what we ask of him. The more we praise him, the more we come to know him, the less self-centered our prayers are going to be. As we praise the Lord, is he the one changed in the process? No, because he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's always been wonderful. He always will be wonderful. He doesn't change. When we praise him, we are the ones who are changed in the process from glory to glory into his image. That was the introduction. Now let's look (laughs) at the prayer petitions. Let's look at his favor, verses 16 to 18. O Lord, according to all thy righteousness, I beseech thee, let thine anger and thy fury be turned away from thy city, Jerusalem, thy holy mountain, which would be Zion, upon which Jerusalem sits, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and thy people are become a reproach to all that are about us. Now, therefore, O our God, hear the prayer of thy servant and his supplications and cause thy face to shine upon thy sanctuary that is desolate. For the Lord's sake, for your sake, God. Verse 18, O my God, incline thine ear and hear. Open thine eyes and behold our desolations and the city which is called by thy name. For we do not present our supplications before thee for our righteousnesses, but for thy great mercies. All right, he's asking God's favor basically for four, on, four, on the behalf of four things. He asks his favor on his city, Jerusalem, on his saints, the Jewish people, although they weren't all really saints, right? Um, but I had to stick with the S's. Um, he's asking for favor on his sanctuary, which would be the temple, and he's asking for God's favor for his own name's sake. Repeatedly, three times he says that. Well, he begins the petition, part of his prayer, with an appeal to O Lord, which is Adonai, Master, uh, Sovereign God. And this appeal is founded on the righteousness of God, as I told you in the introduction. He says, in accordance with all your righteous acts. That should be the basis of any prayer that we make. Our appeals are never to be based on any merit that we have apart from him. Daniel wasn't going to ask God anything that would go against his own righteousness. His petitions would all be for the advancement of God's own righteous glory. Unfortunately, there is a tendency in some Christian circles today to think of God as the believer's genie in a bottle or in a lamp, right? You know, you just rub the lamp, the genie comes out, and uh, you ask your prayer request that he is there, he is here for us. That's kind of the mentality. 
He is here for us. There's a lot of songs out there that are all about me. You know, God, thank you for what you did for me and me and me and me. Instead of being Christ-centered, they're me-centered. This is an attitude. We are, he is not here for us. He doesn't exist for us. We exist for him, to bring him glory. (laughs) Everything that he created, which is what? (laughs) Everything, including us. Everything he created for his glory. Everything was created for his glory. And knowing this, Daniel's underlying petition was for God to act in the way that would most glorify himself. Now this causes many people who do not know God to think that he is self-centered. Everything is about his own glory. Well, that's really selfish. That's really self-centered. Now, the reason they think that way is because they're unsaved. Unsaved men, when they act in their own best interests, it's usually at the expense of others. They put themselves first. That isn't true with God. God is love personified. God is love. When he acts... In his own best interests, it is always, no exception, always for the good of those who belong to him. For we know that all things work together for good to those that know him, love him, etc. Romans 8.28. Those for whom he gave his all. How could you call a God self-centered and selfish who willingly took upon himself the likeness of man and suffered the death of a criminal on a cross, shed, you know, died, spent an eternity in hell during those three hours for us, separated from his father because he is etern- eternal. He separated eternity in three hours, which goes beyond our finite minds to comprehend, but died for you and died for me. Is that a self? What other God would do that? None. He is not selfish. People who who accuse God of being selfish don't understand. I used the analogy yesterday. He created us and the angels, two different creations, for his glory. But he did it because he wanted he wanted to have a personal relationship with us. He had so much love, he was just like overflowing, right, with love. He is love. And he wanted to shed that love on others. And have that relationship with them. And it's like, did you want to have children? Some of you didn't want to have children, but some of you did want to have children. Some of you maybe couldn't have children. But when I wanted, I, I only got married because I wanted children. When you, when you wanted to have a child, was that because you're so selfish? Or is it because you had so much love in your heart? You wanted to, you wanted to have a baby and you wanted to love on it, right? And then you, you wanted another child because you wanted to expand that love. That's God. I mean, God didn't want to just sit up there alone. He wanted to have babies, children that he could love on. Do you get it? He's not self-centered. Well, you, you know, because you know God. Daniel's petition for God to act in his, for his own name's sake, which he says in verse 17, verse 18, verse 19, verse 19, is the equivalent of what we are supposed to mean when we pray in 
Jesus' name. Now, you know, we end prayers in Jesus' name. We're not just to tack that on, the end of our prayers, as some kind of a habit. And I think a lot of times we do, you know, we just say our prayer in in Jesus' name, amen. We don't even think about it. We're not to do it as a habit. We're not to do it as some kind of a superstitious magic formula or a good luck charm. If I say in Jesus' name, then I'm going to get what I want. That's not the purpose behind it. We're to say those words for one thing, to remind ourselves that we only have the privilege to pray in the first place because of the merits and the righteousness of Jesus. Not our own, only because of him. For another thing, we are saying that to the best of our knowledge, our prayer is in alignment with both the person and the will of the Lord Jesus. Now, how do we learn about the person and the will of the Lord Jesus? It's again, the scripture, the whole Bible is about him. But in particular, we really did for 13 years. We studied the life of Christ every jot and tittle, didn't we? Took us a long time, but he we were obedient. Were we in the will of God when we studied the life of Christ? Yes, because didn't he say, learn of me? Well, we did. That's how we know his will and his person. To pray in Jesus' name should be the believer's way of saying that he only wants his prayers answered in ways that will honor and glorify the Son. Because then we know if we are honoring and glorifying the Son, who else is also going to be honored and glorified? The first person of the Godhead, the Father. Jesus said on the last night before, you know, of his crucif- um, his arrest in his um, farewell discourse, John 14, 13, he said, And whatsoever ye shall ask in my name, that will I do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. It's not the words in Jesus' name that matter, is it? It's not the words. It's, it's that it's a kind of a reminder to us. Whatever we're praying should be for the honor and the glory and the praise of, of Jesus. It's, it's our purpose behind those words. Daniel's first petition was for God to turn away, from his ang- his, turn away his anger and his wrath from Jerusalem his, and his holy mountain, Zion, and from his people. Turn your wrath away from your people. Jerusalem is the city and Zion is the mountain that God has chosen to bear his name to the world. He chose it, not because of anything great about that place. It's just because he chose it. And it just happened to be in the belly button of the the land masses of the earth. So it's a perfect place. It's where his presence was once symbolized by what? Over the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies. It had departed, but the Shekinah glory, that's where God's presence was once symbolized. Now, Daniel gave several reasons why God should turn from his anger and his wrath. First, because showing mercy was the is the very nature of his righteousness because he's righteous he says according to thy righteousness because he's righteous he is also merciful second and this is implied he doesn't say this but his holy justice has been served the people had suffered for their sins according to his own prophesied judgment their homeland their holy city their temple had all been destroyed They had been made slaves in a foreign land. They lost everything, and they had been the objects of scorn 
and reproach among the nations. He says, thy people are become a reproach to all that are about us. So they had served, you know, the punishment. And the, the time of punishment was just about over. In essence, Daniel is saying to God, the world believes that you are not powerful enough to have prevented the destruction of your land and your city and your people. So restore us, your people, so that on your behalf and by way of your mighty hand, we might rebuild your city so that your name will be exalted. Not only will your own people see, but the nations of the world both now and in the future, like us studying this book, the nations, the people will also see that you kept your word regarding the punishment for our sins. You kept your word. You said if we didn't obey, we'd suffer. You kept your word on that part, but then you've also kept your word in restoring us after 70 years. Now, Daniel didn't say all that. (laughs) I'm saying that that's what is implied in his requests. And God, who knows the heart, understood all this. Well, Daniel also pleaded with God to look favorably. He says to shine his face on the desolate sanctuary, the temple. He sought for the return of his people so they could rebuild the temple that was there in order to worship God. It was all for his name's sake. And his required sacrifices could again be offered. So Daniel's prayer was not for the sake of the sinful Israelites. It was for the sake of the Lord himself. His requests weren't even for himself. He wasn't asking this for himself so that he could finally go back and see the temple rebuilt because he knew in his early 80s he would never go back. He never did go back. You know that. He never saw his homeland again. So he's not asking these things for himself so that before he died he could see Jerusalem. It's solely for thy sake, O Lord. That's selfless, isn't it? Well, as mentioned, he fully realized that Israel's return, her restoration, and any future blessings were all contingent upon God's character. So again, at the end of verse 18, he acknowledges that his petitions were not on the basis of either his righteousness or the righteousness of his people, but solely dependent on God's what? What's the last couple words there in verse 18? His great mercies. He didn't approach God's promises with this kind of name it and claim it attitude, did he? He didn't do that. If you look carefully, as I said before, look carefully, go home, read the prayer. You will find that he never claimed anything. He never claimed anything. He knew Jeremiah's prophecy about the 70-year duration of their captivity. He knew that. He even knew that God was going to use a man named Cyrus to set them free. He knew all those things, but he doesn't name it and claim it. He doesn't. His petitions are centered on God's mercy. That opened up my eyes. I thought, wow, (laughs) just ask for God's mercy. Daniel understood, you see, that even an appeal for God to keep his word is really an appeal to his great mercies. Because God doesn't really have to keep his word. Well, he does because he's righteous. (laughs) Mercy was shown. It was shown to the Jews in their return from Babylon. They did get to return, didn't they? Just like God said. But it, was, it wasn't because they deserved it. it. It was because God had promised to reveal his merciful saving nature and purposes through them long before this. 
Remember the Abrahamic covenant? Daniel, um, Daniel. Uh, Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, when he told Abraham, Abraham hadn't even had any kids yet. And he said, through his seed, all the families of the earth would be blessed. Because it was through Abraham's seed that they, the, the Jewish people would come and the world was to learn about God from Israel. And uh, the world is blessed because of Abraham's seed, because through Abraham's seed, and then, you know, Isaac, Jacob, David, on down, the Savior would come to the world. And the Jews were to share the news about the Savior with the world. They didn't do too good. Well, the church isn't doing too good either. Got news for you. So mercy is shown for God's own name's sake. The plan of salvation only exists, why? Because God is merciful. That's the only reason we have a plan of salvation. How many times could he have wiped out Israel or, or the whole world? I mean, think about it. He threatened to wipe out Israel. Or he got so mad at them in Exodus 32.10. He threatened to do that. And this is why Moses was such a great intercessor, because he interceded on behalf of his people you know, and, and saved them. But uh, he could have been justified in doing that. They were just stiff-necked, you know, rebellious, unrepentant people. Think about at the end of the book of Judges. Every man was doing that which is right in his own eyes. He could have wiped out the world then. He could have wiped out the world at the time of Noah, except he saved eight. He had eight people. It's down to eight people. He could have wiped out the world with Adam. You know, Adam deliberately disobeyed. Eve was deceived, ladies. But Adam, <laughs> Adam deliberately disobeyed. <laughs> and God had said, you know, you eat of the forbidden fruit and you surely shall die. He could have killed him right then and there. He could have. But immediately after the fall is when he promised to send a savior, the seed of the woman. And that would then be the seed of Abraham and the seed of David, who would bring salvation to both the Jews and to the Gentiles. So it's all about his mercy. If Daniel's prayer had gone unanswered, and the Jews had been left in Babylon to eventually be assimilated by them and by the other sequential Gentile kingdoms that followed Babylon. And you know if they all stayed there, eventually they would have intermarried and they would have amalgamated and there would be no Israel, no Jews, no, no Israel. God you know, said he'd be born in Bethlehem, Ephrata, God's promises would have failed. There would have been no savior, no salvation. So the stakes really couldn't be any higher for their exodus from Babylon. They needed to leave Babylon. So it wasn't because they were so great. They didn't even repent. They got this one great guy repenting on their behalf, intercessory prayer. I'm sure Ezekiel and Zerubbabel and some of the others, Ezra, were doing the same. But it was... His mercy, he was going to keep all his promises and his whole salvation plan. Well, the bad news in the, oh, let me read verse 19. This is God's forgiveness. God's forgiveness. Oh, Lord, hear. Oh, Lord, forgive. Oh, Lord, hearken and do. Defer not for thine own sake. Oh, my God, for thy city and thy people are called by thy name. All right, so the bad news in the confessional part of his prayer is that God punishes sin with judgment. That's bad news. I mean, he needs to because he's holy and just, but it's bad news. The good news in the petition part of his prayer is that God is also merciful and righteous in his forgiveness. 
Think about it. If he forgave with just a Santa Claus type of wink in his eye, you know, the sinners, you know, okay, that's okay. You'll get your gift this Christmas anyway. His, if he did that, his forgiveness would not be righteous, would it? You know, if a judge in a court just lets the murderer go with no punishment at all, you don't call that a just judge. We have a lot of unjust judges in our country today. A holy and a just God must punish sin. Otherwise, he's not just and holy. And so the only, the only solution is that the sinner either must pay for his, the, the penalty of his sins himself, which is eternal separation from the one who is holy, because a holy God cannot have unholiness in his presence. So the sinner must either pay for the penalty himself or someone else takes the penalty in his place. And that's exactly what we have going on. What Jesus did, God himself took our sins upon himself so he could be man's perfect sin substitute, our kinsman redeemer. So Daniel was praying as a patriotic citizen of Israel. But more important than that, he was praying as a patriotic, eternal citizen of where? He knew his true citizenship is in heaven. Now, I am a very patriotic person. I love the United States of America. I think probably everybody in here, it's either your land of birth or maybe your land of choice, you know, by immigration. But Basically, are we not patriotic? But more importantly than praying, and we should pray for our country, to turn back to its roots, its Judeo-Christian foundation, uh, we should pray for that. But more importantly, what else are we to pray? For his kingdom to come, on, you know, his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven, because our real citizenship, our eternal citizenship is in heaven. And we should remember to pray more faithfully for that. Well, Daniel believed in God. He believed in God's promise of a coming Savior. Now, he may have thought, and I don't know what's going on in his mind, but Daniel may have thought that God's promise uh, through Jeremiah of Israel's return to the land and his assurance that the temple would be rebuilt, that this meant the soon coming of the Messiah and the Messianic kingdom. I mean, after all, it's been many, many, many years that they're waiting for the Messiah. So he's saying, okay, we've been punished. We're gonna, he's told us we're going to go back to the land. So maybe the imminent return, uh, not return, <laughs> the imminent coming of the, of the Messiah is at hand. And the Messianic kingdom, we're going to build a temple. If that's what he was thinking, if that is what he was thinking, then Gabriel's God-sent answer to his prayer would address the fact that the Messianic kingdom would be a long time in coming. A long time in coming. It's been 2,600 years since Daniel prayed that prayer, and the Messianic kingdom still has not come. Now, it could have been a lot sooner from Daniel's time. It could have been, because the Messiah did come about 483 years well, no, that's not quite right. But he did come some 600 years later from Daniel's time. But what did Israel do to him? They, just like Gabriel says, they cut him off. That's in the, the 70 weeks prophecy. They cut him off. And so they forfeited having the Messianic kingdom at that time. 
Well, something else Daniel had learned from both the scriptures and experientially he learned this. He learned that God answers prayer. Remember the diet test when he was just a teenager? God answered his prayers. You know, let me just eat vegetables and and, uh, pulse and water. And in 10 days, I'll show that we're healthier. And God answered that prayer mightily. And so he had the diet test and then remember the dream test. Nebuchadnezzar was going to cut all the wise men up in little pieces and make their houses into dunghills. <laughs> and Daniel and his three friends were now wise men. So he, they prayed. They had a prayer meeting about that. So he passed the diet test and the dream test. And maybe by now he's all, already passed the den test. I don't know, the lion's den test. But he knows, and from his three friends in the fiery furnace, he knows that God answers prayer. He probably was also familiar with passages such as these. Isaiah 30, 19. It says, God will be very gracious unto thee at the voice of thy cry. When he shall hear it, he will answer thee. Or Isaiah 58, 9. Then shalt thou call and the Lord shall answer. Thou shalt cry and he shall say, here am I. And Isaiah 65, 24. Listen to this one. It says, before they call. I will answer. And while they are yet speaking, I will hear. And then you all know Jeremiah 33, 3. uh, Call unto me, and I will answer thee, and show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. Those verses, and there's others, but those verses right there about God graciously hearing and answering prayer even before those prayers are are um, spoken or even during the prayer and showing great and mighty things in response to that prayer. That certainly was the case with Daniel's chapter nine prayer. Certainly was the case because we're told or he was told by Gabriel in verse 23. I'm going to read it in a minute, but he was told by Gabriel that the minute he began to pray, God sent forth Gabriel to give him the answer. Now, how could that be? He hadn't even spoken his request. Remember what Jesus said to his disciples? He said, your father knows what things ye have need of before you even ask him. Well, we hear God, uh, Daniel's passion, the passion of his soul. As he says in kind of staccato form, he says, oh, Lord, hear. Oh, Lord, forgive. Oh, Lord, listen and act. That's passion. I mean, you know, the fervent, effectual prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Effective, fervent. It's actually the E comes before the F. That's how I memorize things. Effective, fervent. <laughs> but he's fervent. I mean, he may have been praying all day long. I don't know. This We have, a, I think, a summation of his prayer, a synopsis of it. He's probably worked up quite a sweat at this. And, and here he is. He's at, What is he doing? He's asking, seeking, knocking. That's easy to memorize too, right? Because it spells ask, ask, seek, knock. (laughs) He's he's crying out for Jehovah to do exactly what Israel repeatedly failed to do. What did Israel repeatedly fail to do? Hear. She never would hear. She never would listen, right? Wouldn't listen to the prophets, wouldn't listen to him. So he's asking Jehovah to do what Israel failed to do. Hear. Hear and listen. God's words of promise, both for the restoration and salvation, of, of the whole world were at stake. So Daniel asked God not to defer. What does that mean? Don't defer. Don't tarry. Don't delay. Right. Don't put it off. Uh, do, do what you said. 
uh, fulfill your word. Now, he doesn't say that, though, does he? (laughs) But God knows what he's saying, but he doesn't really say that. So this tells us that Daniel had a very high level of expectation that the completion of Jerusalem's 70 years of desolation was imminent. Don't we have that expectation today? Don't we just sense that it's imminent? Well, it is. It's always imminent. The Lord could return at any point in time. But he had this, he knew because it was based on God's word. We can know by looking at the signs of our times and see how everything's aligning up for the return of the Lord. His plea was for God to respond to what he had been seeing and hearing with Exodus-type intervention. Just like he looked down at Israel when she was crying in her slavery in Egypt. Look down upon us, you know, we're crying in our slavery, so intervene and deliver us. The return from Babylon would be kind of like a second Egyptian exodus, except it would be a Babylonian exodus. So he began his petitions by calling on God to turn, verse 16, to listen, verse 17, 18, to look, verse 18, and to hear. And his prayer concluded, Now I only say it concluded, I'm not sure it concluded, because he was interrupted. He didn't get to say in Jesus' name, did he? (laughs) Uh, But his last things are for God to forgive, to act, and not to delay. But before he had actually ended his prayer, there he is on his knees. He feels a soft hand touching him. (laughs) Imagine that. And he looks up, and he doesn't pass out because he recognizes who? Gabriel doesn't pass out this time and once you've seen Gabriel do you you remember him next time he shows up you think (laughs) he recognized him God's very special divine messenger and Gabriel informed him that he had been dispatched as soon as Daniel had started to pray you know when it's God's will to answer the answer may come as soon as the desire is made known I remember, well, I'm going to never finish, but when I was in eighth grade, I needed a 10th insect for an insect collection that was due in science class. And it was Sunday night, and the collection was due Monday morning, and I wasn't saved, but God does answer some of the prayers of the unsaved. One, for example, when you repent and ask for him to save you, he he answers. But I cried out to God, I need, and I'm in Chicago, and it's winter, and there aren't a whole lot of insects, okay? (laughs) I had trouble finding nine. I don't know why that science project was due in winter in Chicago. I mean, it should have, why didn't you wait till summer? And so I'm praying on my knees. And I said, I need a tenth insect. I was in the middle of that prayer, and my sister comes screaming out of the bathroom. What do you think was in the bathtub? No, it was a a silverfish, but I was thankful for anything. I mean, I remember that just so vividly. I knew that was God answering my prayer. And I had my, I got an A. (laughs) But he can answer, right? He can answer while we're in the middle of prayer. So we move to the second part of Daniel chapter 9. Prayer prompts new prophecy. I'll be really, really quick with this. I probably just have to speak about it as we go through it. Let's look at verses 20 to 23. And whiles I was speaking, get a tickle out of that. I always corrected my dad. He'd say, and whiles I was doing this. I said, dad, that's not right English. You have to say, and while. And now I find out it's biblical. And whiles I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplications before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God, yea, whiles I was speaking, by the way, speaking means it was verbal. 
He was speaking out loud, and that's another way to focus and not get drifting off. You know, when you're praying, pray out loud in your prayer closet, in your home. Pray out loud. It helps you to focus. But this also tells me how fearless he was because this is first year of Darius, okay? Remember when the edict came that he wasn't to, nobody was to pray to any god but Darius for and any petition? What does he do? He goes home, opens the windows, the shutters of his window, and he not only praise so everybody can see him but he's praying out loud so his enemies down below know definitely he's praying to his god and he's defying the edict so that that was interesting whilst i was speaking in prayer all right even the man gabriel whom i had seen in the vision at the beginning that was 12 years earlier by the way the vision that he had seen with gabriel you know the ram and the he goat and the little horn That's what he's talking about. I think I said last week that there was a vision in chapter 9. I don't know why I said that, because there isn't. So he's talking about the the previous vision. Anyway, he's saying he recognizes Gabriel being caused to fly swiftly. They they say that it takes about three minutes to read through Daniel's prayer. And therefore, if Gabriel left heaven at the time he began the prayer, that means he can travel faster than the speed of light. (laughs) But he he flew swiftly, and he touched me about the time of the evening oblation. You know when that would be? 3 o'clock in the afternoon, the ninth hour, the exact same hour that Jesus died. You know, that's when they were to, Moses was told, the people were to, uh, to offer the Passover lambs back in Exodus. That's the same hour that Jesus died, the true Passover lamb, was the time of the evening oblation, 3 p.m., our time. And he informed me and talked with me and said, Oh, Daniel, I am now come forth to give thee skill and understanding. At the beginning of thy supplications, the commandment came forth, and I am come to show thee, for thou art greatly beloved. Therefore, understand the matter and consider the vision. All right, I already talked about how he spoke out loud. It was the time of the evening oblation. All right, Gabriel tells Daniel that he came forth to give him insight with understanding and to gain understanding of the vision since there's no vision. In chapter 9, he must have referred to the chapter 8 vision of the ram, the he-goat, the king of fierce countenance who would wreak havoc on God's people. You know, it's really interesting that he's coming to give him understanding of that vision. When Daniel had never, he didn't ask for that, did he? Did he ask for understanding of the vision? But you know God reads the heart. The Lord always knew the heart of people. You know, he knew what Nicodemus really wanted when he came that night. He knew that ever since that vision, which had been 12 years earlier, and Gabriel gave him an interpretation, but it wasn't very adequate, was it? Because Daniel still was perplexed about it. And he was confused. He even went to other people. Nobody else was really able to help him. But it perplexed him because, you know, he put that vision together with the other ones. Daniel, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's dream of the image, the golden image. I mean, the gold and silver and, you know, the Colossus. And then his own dream about the four beasts coming up out of the stirred up sea, great sea. And he put that together with this uh, little horn. And it it just looked like nothing was making sense to what he understood about Israel was to be the glorious nation of the world. But instead, it looked like all the Gentile nations were the glorious powers. And when he heard about the little horn that was going to come, Antiochus Epiphanes, and destroy the sanctuary, abominate the sanctuary, and then this king of fierce countenance who was going to prevail against the, the saints his people, and then he was even going to wage war against the prince of princes, the Messiah. You know, wouldn't you be confused? 
how does Israel, this doesn't sound like Israel being the blessing to all the nations of the world. <laughs> so for 12 years, well, even longer than that, he's been, he's been really wanting to understand all this stuff. And God knew it. God knew it. So even though that isn't what he asks for, you know, doesn't the Lord give us exceeding abundant above all that we could ask or think? So he sends Gabriel really to give him understanding about the whole big picture and where Israel really is in all of this. It's amazing. So what we'll be looking at next, oh, so really why, what he does is he answers his prayer for three reasons. I mean, he, he sends Gabriel for three reasons. Daniel's prayer, number one, which was a godly, super powerful prayer that we should all learn from. Uh, he answers for Daniel's prayer. He answers because of Daniel's perplexity over all these revelations. And he answers because of Daniel's person. This is so wonderful. Daniel, how do you think Daniel would look to the world looking in, in his bedchamber praying there? He's an old man, right? He's probably perspiring from his fervent prayer. He's dressed not in prime minister robes, but in sackcloth. He's got smudges of ashes all over him. He's frail. He's a slave, really. He's a captive. And so the world looking at Daniel, they'd say, that guy is a capital C um, L loser. He's a loser, a lunatic. Yeah. <laughs> but how does the Lord see? How does the Lord look at us from the outside? Right. He looks at the heart and he looked at the heart and he said that Daniel, Gabriel gives him this message that he is greatly beloved. Wow. Don't worry about what the world thinks of you, ladies. And you know how the other translation for those two words in Hebrew is very precious. We are very precious in the sight of the Lord. Isn't that wonderful? And that's something to hang your hat on and go home and praise him for. So the answer he received from Gabriel, and that's what you got to be here in two weeks. You got to be here. Change your appointments, whatever you have to do, <laughs> uh, is, is called the great 70 weeks prophecy. It is truly the jeweled key of Old Testament prophecy that unlocks the whole treasure chest of New Testament prophecy. You've got to get a grip on this prophecy. It's only one, two, three, four verses long, but it's the key to understanding all end times prophecy. Well, actually, the first and second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and his whole program for Israel. So be here two weeks from today, whatever that is. All right, let's pray. Lord, our heavenly father, in accordance with your righteousness, though we have sinned against you, we in humility come to you with our request that you glorify yourself in each and every one of us. And in our churches, our individual churches, in our families, in this nation, in this world. And we don't request this for glory or for prominence that might be given to us or, or to this nation. But rather we desire that your name would be glorified in this country once again and in our churches as in the past, stir up your people that belong to you, your son, the Lord Jesus, prod them to holiness, prod us to holy living, 
Help us to righteous living. Embolden us to openly proclaim you and your gospel to all. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and take action. Send a revival that will shake this nation from coast to coast. We badly need it. For thine own sake, O God, do not delay that your name might be glorified. For we ask, knowing that these things are in the will of your Son. Amen. Amen. Amen.